You'll turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16. Last week we began a series entitled, Are You Trusting God? A pretty difficult question to ask and even a more difficult question sometimes for us to answer. And in this series we are examining the area of trust in a relationship to our walk with God. We've already answered the question, can I trust God? The answer is obvious, yes. We, we looked at the, the constant care of God. We examined also His generosity. And, and in those things we learned that God is trustworthy. He is worthy of our trusting Him. Today we're going to ask a different question. One that may be more difficult for us to answer. It's the question, can God trust me? Can God trust you? Can God trust us? Well, he deals with this issue in a passage that we find in Luke chapter 16. This passage can be a little difficult to, to understand. It's one of those parables that can leave you scratching your head, but, but I want us to take a moment and examine this parable in Luke's Gospel, chapter 16, verses 1 through 13. So here we go, starting in verse 1. He, speaking of Jesus, also said to his disciples, there was a rich man who received an accusation that his manager was squandering his possessions. So he called the manager in and asked, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you can no longer be my manager. Then the manager said to himself, What should I do? Since my, ma my master excuse me, is taking the management away from me, I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do. So that when I'm removed from management, people will welcome me into their homes. So he summoned each one of his master's debtors. How much do you owe my, ask my master? He asked the first one. A hundred measures of olive oil, he said. Take your invoice, he told him. Sit down and quickly write 50. Then he asked another, How much do you owe? A hundred measures of wheat, he said. Take your invoice, he told him, and write 80. The master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted astutely. For the sons of this age are more astute than the sons of light in dealing with their own people. Verse 9, And I tell you, make friends for yourselves, by means of the unrighteous money, so that when it fails, they may welcome you into eternal dwellings. Whoever is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And whoever is unrighteous in little is also unrighteous in much. Verse 11. So if you have not been faithful with the unrighteous money, who will trust you with what is genuine? And if you have not been faithful with what belongs to someone else, who will give you what is your 
own. And in verse 13, no household slave can be the slave to two masters, since either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You can't be slaves to both God and money. Now, many of us have heard verse 13, but we don't really remember the reason which Jesus said these words. We don't remember the parable that, that goes before these words of serving two masters. Today, I want us to examine this passage of Scripture in light of can God trust me? Can God trust me? I believe that our trust relationship with God is a lot like parenting. It's a lot like parenting. I can remember my mom used to say this phrase. If she said it one time, she said it a million times. I give you an inch and you take a mile. You've heard it before. Your parents may have told you that. But, but parenting, especially parenting teenagers, it's, it's a lot like using this principle of trust. And it's a lot like the relationship that we have with God. It's about trust. Now, this parable deals with the issue of possessions. It deals with the issue of money. And really what it talks about is wrong attitudes. The, the, the actions in this parable are what we're going to talk about, but in reality, what it's about more is the attitudes about possessions, the attitudes about money. And money, whether you believe it or not, was an important subject to Jesus. He talked about money in 16 of his 36 parables. One out of every 10 verses in the gospel. The Bible devotes 500 verses to prayer, less than 500 verses to faith, but over 2,000 verses on the subject of money and possessions. So, well, here's another preacher talking about money. Well, I can go back and show you my list of titles and texts going all the way back to March of 2010. And I don't talk about money a lot. Matter of fact, when I look at the reality of how much Jesus talked about it, I'm convicted as your pastor that I don't talk about it enough. So, with that being said, what I want us to do this morning is to look at this parable of the foolish steward and see what kind of principles of trust we can gather and apply to our relationship with Christ. First of all, <clears throat> excuse me, let's examine the accountability of the foolish steward. The accountability of the foolish steward. Notice here that Jesus gives this parable to his disciples. This is not a, a crowd of lost people that are just coming to hear what Jesus says. He gives this parable specifically 
to his disciples, not to the scribes, not to the Pharisees. He gives it to his followers, the followers of Christ. He gives it to the ones who have already been entrusted with much. Look with me at verses 1 and 2 again. He also said to his disciples, there was a rich man who received an accusation that his manager was squandering his possessions. So he called the manager in and asked, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you can no longer be my manager. Now this manager, this servant, if you will, this slave, if you will, was called to account by the owner. The owner called him to account. It's basically as if the owner called him and said, listen, go grab the ledger books and bring them to me. Uh-oh. He's being called to account. Why is he being called to account? Well, he was called to account because of two reasons. And these two reasons actually happen to be the very same reasons that you and I are accountable to God. First of all, because He is the owner and we are the managers. In the parable, this servant is the manager and the master is His owner. In our relationship with God, God is the owner and we are His managers. Everything that you and I have is a gift from God. You see, I own nothing. You own nothing. The owner lets us use what He has entrusted to us. We are accountable to Him, to God, and to God alone. We all know that Scripture points to the fact that every good gift that we have comes from God, right? Everything that we have that is good, why are we to live with an attitude of thanksgiving to God? Because all that we have that is good comes from Him. Now, this is an important factor in our relationship with God. And here's where the attitude about stewardship, the attitude about possessions, the attitude about money comes into play. It's this. Until we understand, until we can grasp and live out an attitude that says all that is in my possession belongs to God, then we're going to struggle. We're going to struggle. If we don't apply this principle, we're always going to have a problem with accountability. We're always going to have a problem with stewardship. If I believe that I'm the owner, that I'm going to be in constant conflict with the manager, excuse me, the master, as the manager, I'll always be in conflict with the master with the owner. But when I understand that God is the owner and that I am the manager, then the conflict is over. 
Will you ask what belongs to God? Everything. Your health, your life, your possessions, your family. Everything this world says you own actually belongs to God. So, first we must understand that He, God, is the owner and we are the managers. The second, second thing we need to understand is that the owner has expectations. That's right. He has expectations. Too much is given, much is expected or required. Since we are managers for the owner, what does he expect us to manage? What are the requirements that God has because he has entrusted us with all that he's entrusted us with? Well, we're responsible for ourselves. First and foremost, what, what do we tell children when they're getting in trouble at school and they blame it on the, the, the child that's sitting next to them? They say, well, so-and-so did so-and-so. We say to them, what? Worry about yourself. You take care of yourself. Boy, what a simple principle, but, but we often mess that up, even in our adulthood. Even when we say that to our children, and don't live it out. How many of us are worried about what somebody else is doing rather than worrying about ourselves? Romans 12.1 tells us, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. What else are we responsible for? Our possessions. What does God expect us to do with the things that He's given us? Here's an interesting passage. Luke 14, 33. In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything, he cannot be my disciple. If you're not willing to give up all that God has given you, then you're not worthy to be a manager. If you're not willing to give it all up, if the owner calls for it, then you're not worthy of being a manager. Time. Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus, Be careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making what? The most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Making the most of every opportunity. What else? What else do we have that God requires an account for? How about our spiritual gifts? How about the gifts and talents that God has given us? 1 Peter 4.10 Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others. Faithfully administering God's grace in various forms. I don't think it's an accident that God led me to share with you this series of messages right in the midst of ending a church year and, new, and beginning a new church year. You have in your bulletin a nominations list. Opportunities to use your spiritual gifts. 
God has given them to you, and now you are accountable. You're accountable before Him. We're responsible. We're accountable for ourselves, our possessions, our time, our spiritual gifts. And lastly, you may not have never thought this, but you and I are both accountable for the gospel, for the good news of Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians 2.4, we read these words, On the contrary, we speak as men approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. You and I have been entrusted with the good news of Jesus Christ. When Jesus ascended to the Father, He gave us that responsibility, the responsibility to proclaim the gospel, to spread the good news of Jesus Christ, to do what He did while He lived on the face of this earth. <coughs> Why did God create the church? To entrust the church with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now that's a lot. And it may feel a bit overwhelming. But I promise you that God will provide the grace and mercy for us to be good managers if we will trust if we will trust Him. Now we've examined the accountability of the foolish steward. Let's move on to the assessment. The assessment of this foolish steward. The moment that this foolish steward realized that he was going to look, excuse me, he was going to lose his job, look at what he says. Look at verse 3. Look at verse 3. Then the manager, that's the steward we're talking about, said to himself, what should I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me. I love these next few verses. I'm not strong enough to dig. You know what that means, don't you? I don't want to get out there in the hot sun. I, I can't do that. I've been up in here in this air conditioner way too long. I can't dig ditches. I can't collect trash. I can't do manual labor. And then what's the other phrase? I'm too ashamed to beg. I'm too ashamed to beg. And then he gets an idea. I know what I'll do. So that when I'm removed from management, people will welcome me into their homes. I know what I'll do. He makes an assessment. And it's an interesting assessment. He knew that he was in trouble. He knew that he was going to be fired. So he asked the question, what should I do? You probably know this. If you don't, you'll probably learn it. It's hard for people to change their ways. It's hard. It's very difficult for people to change. I don't know if you've ever tried to encourage someone to change their way concerning a certain matter. It's difficult. And, and most people say there are three different times when people change. And one of those is when they get desperate. That's what you heard out of this manager when he says, look, I can't dig ditches. I'm too proud to beg. What you saw 
was a desperate person. A desperate manager. He assessed his situation, realized that he wasn't doing what the master required, and decided to do something different. Let me ask you this morning. Are you going to wait until you are desperate before you take assessment of your relationship with God? Are you going to wait until tragedy strikes before you decide to make a change in the area of trusting God, in the area of stewardship, in the area of managing what God has entrusted to you? Well, let me encourage you with this principle. People that make changes during difficult times normally go back to business as usual when the difficult time passes. They normally go right back. On the Sunday after 9-11, there was a 50% increase in church attendance compared to the week before 50% increase. Charlie, did you count today? What was the number? Say it louder. 120-something. That's a pretty good count. <laughs> Alright, you know what that means? A 50% increase. 120-something. That'd be 180 folks in here. That'd be a homecoming Sunday. 50% increase. You know what? The more telling statistic is, it only took two weeks for that 50% increase to come down to zero. Why? Because when you make a change because of a difficult time, when the difficult time leaves, you go back to business as usual. Don't wait until something happens. Make the change now. We've seen the accountability and the assessment of the foolish steward. Now, let's examine the actions of the foolish steward. Let's look at what, what did he do after the assessment. This is verses 4 and 7. Verses 4 through 7. I know what I'll do so that when I'm removed from management, people will welcome me into their homes. So he summoned each one of the master's debtors. Okay? How much do you owe my master, he asked the first one. A hundred measures of olive oil, he said. Take your invoice, he told him. Sit down and quickly write fifty. Next, he asked another, how much do you owe? A hundred measures of wheat, he said. Take your invoice, he told him, and write eighty. <clears throat> So these are the actions. This is what this manager did once he got into this desperate situation. And this is often where the difficulty of this passage comes into play. This foolish steward all of a sudden becomes a shrewd businessman. When he realized that he was going to be fired, he started making deals with people that owed money to his boss. Was he trying to gain the favor of his boss? No. He was actually trying to gain the favor of the people that he had been lording over. 
that he had been responsible for. These debtors. How much do you owe my boss? 800 gallons. Make it 400. 1,000 bushels. Make it 800. Here's the key. The key to understanding this is the mention of unrighteous money and righteous leads us to believe that this manager had actually overcharged these individuals originally to the point that they could not pay the money. And then interest built up and continued to compile to the point that they were not able to pay their bills. And so what was this manager doing? He was going back to these debtors and he was actually charging them what they should have been originally charged. He was taking off the unrighteous money. He was removing from them what he added because he wanted to keep it for himself. By doing that, what he was really doing also was he was setting the price at a level that the people could actually pay what they owed. The reason the, the, the master came back and called to account was the money wasn't coming in. It wasn't coming in because he had inflated the prices. The people couldn't pay the money and so he added interest upon interest upon interest. He was unrighteous. He was foolish. And what is he doing now? He's doing what he should have done originally. By doing that, we see what I believe are four lessons that I'd like for us to make as our points of application as we close. The first lesson is this. To use your opportunities wisely. Use your opportunities wisely. Look at verses 8 and 9. The master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted astutely. For the sons of this age are more astute than the sons of light in dealing with their own people. And I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of the unrighteous money so that when it fails, they may welcome you into eternal dwellings. Now, there's a lot in this passage we really don't have time to, to, to deal with. But what I want you to see is that this foolish steward, this manager that was unrighteous, finally used his opportunities wisely. He decided... The, the master gave him some time. He gave him an opportunity. He knew that he was going to get fired, but the master gave him an opportunity, and in that time, the manager began using the master's money in the proper way. No more excessive interest. No more overcharging. Now, some of you may realize this morning that you aren't using the time that God gives you like you should use it. Maybe you're saying to yourself, I'm not using my spiritual gifts. I haven't given money and possessions to Him. 
I really haven't settled this issue. Well, the good news is this. God's given you an opportunity. As long as you're still walking on the face of this earth, you've got an opportunity to be a good steward rather than a foolish one. So let me ask you. Are you going to use the opportunity wisely? The second principle is this. Trust must be earned. Trust must be earned. Look back at the passage, verse 10. Whoever is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And whoever is unrighteous in very little is also unrighteous in much. So if you have been faithful in the unrighteous with the unrighteous money, who will trust you with what is genuine? In life and in our relationship with God, trust is something that we must earn. Salvation is a free gift from God that we must receive. But trust is something that we earn from God during our daily walk with Him. You remember the story that Jesus told of the parable of the talents? One man was given five, one was given two, and the other was given one. Do you wonder why the last guy was ever given one talent? Poor fellow. He was only given one talent. Did, did the master not like him? That wasn't it. It was because the master knew him. Probably had some previous experience with him. That, that leads us to asking a few questions. Questions about the, the story. Do you remember what the man said when the master returned? Here's the quote. Then the man who had received the one talent came. Master, he said, I knew that you were, excuse me, you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your talent in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. Why did he give him one talent? Well, the master probably knew him just the way the slave knew the master. Previous experience. He knew that the master would hold him to account just as God holds us to account. And so let me ask you this question. How much does God trust you with? How much does God trust me with? In time, in spiritual gifts, in resources? I'm not talking about how much money you've got in the bank or in investments. I'm, I'm not talking about prosperity gospel that says the more money you have means that you're more favored by God. That's, that's a load of chicken litter. To say it in a nice way. That's not, I'm not talking about prosperity gospel. We know that the Bible says God sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. So just because somebody's rich doesn't mean they're a good steward. What I'm talking about is whether God sees you as a five-talent person or a one-talent person? The better question may be, how much has God not given me because He can't trust me? It's a difficult question. Let me give you a good rule of thumb. 
If you're not giving God 100% now, then you're not going to give God 100% of yourself tomorrow. This is true in every area of life. Time, spiritual gifts, money, resources. Why should the Master give me more if I misuse what He's already given me? Why? Many times we have the same problem that the slave with the one talent had. I was afraid. It was, it was fear that kept me from trusting. It's fear that keeps us from committing to a life of stewardship. I want to share with you. Use your opportunities wisely. Realize that trust must be earned. The third principle is this. Trust can be measured. Look at verses 10 and 12. And then we'll be close to being finished. Whoever is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And whoever is unrighteous in very little is also unrighteous in much. So if you have not been faithful with the unrighteous money, who will trust you with what is genuine? And if you have not been faithful in what belongs to someone else, who will give you what is your own? Let's go back to the reality of our trust relationship with God is, is much like parenting. Let's just say a teenager. Let's just say your teenager is told to be home by 10 o'clock. Oh, the teenagers look up. 10 o'clock? My goodness. Well, let's just say it's a school night. That's too late anyway. You tell them to be home at 10 o'clock. Teenager shows up at 12.30. And the teenager says, Mom, Dad, don't worry about it. Next time, I'll be home on time. Does that work for you? Does that work for you? No, absolutely not. There's not going to be a next time before something is done to earn the trust back. And I think that some of us are trying to fool God. We want to trust, but without the responsibility of being trustworthy. And the two don't go together. Last principle, and then I promise you we're done. Be 100% devoted to God. Verse 13. No household slave can be the slave of two masters, since either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot, you can't be slaves to both God and money. Do you really trust? <coughs> if you really trust, then God is your master. Not things. Not people. But God. If you really want to be all that God created you to be, then you'll trust God. And God can trust you. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your love, for your grace and your mercy. We thank you for all that you've blessed us with. We are blessed. Blessed beyond measure. And those blessings that you've given us one day you'll call to account. And it's my prayer that as we walk this journey of faith, that we will learn these principles of stewardship so that when we are called to account, you will say, 
Well done, good and faithful servant. I don't know what area of stewardship is an area that any member of this congregation needs to, to focus on, to, to give to you. But you know. I don't ever try to assume who's given what they should in the plate or in the church as a volunteer. Don't know it and don't want to know it. But you do. And so God, help us. Help us to have the faith. Help us to have the courage to do your will so that we can receive your blessings. Because when we trust in you, you meet all of our needs above and beyond. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for this day. And we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.